You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Tim Burrows. Hello, hello. Olivia Crimmel. Hello. And Xander Wilson. Hey, Damo. Later in the Mumbrella cast, I'll be chatting with Hero Chief Operating Officer James Greet about the ridiculous divide between media and creative. I think some of our media agencies have managed to make the business of media dull and boring and confusing uh, for clients. Why the former Mindshare, OMD and Icon boss has re-entered the agency landscape. I guess the um, uh, my past influences that have shaped my view on the world and my sort of desire to be involved with Ben and the rest of the team at Hero probably actually sort of goes back to why I started in the industry back in London. And how Australian agencies are lacking the purpose they need that could help them drive results. And I think that's probably sort of like true of a lot of agencies. I don't really think they have that clarity of purpose. They simply are kind of uh, a product category. But first, the week's topics. Essentia makes six redundant as its share price hits a new low. And the subscription streaming service battle for Australian eyeballs heats up as new competitors enter the ring and others make big content announcements. Essentia has hit the headlines again after it was discovered that six staff members had been made redundant, including one who had been with the company for more than 20 years. The news comes at a time where its market capitalization has dropped again and now sits at $13.3 million as of this morning. Remember that number because we'll remind listeners of what it was once worth. Olivia, you got the scoop on the story. Could the hot seat for Mr. Ed Harrison, Icentra CEO, uh, be any hotter at the moment? Yes, Demo. Poor Ed Harrison. He must feel like he's on a sinking ship. Unfortunately, things are not going well for Icentia, especially after that cyber attack late last year, which caused millions of dollars in lost revenue. The company has been struggling for a while, even well before Harrison took the reins, left vacant by former CEO John Kroll, who appears to be doing quite well, actually, at his new outfit over at TrueScope, which also provides media intelligence. But under Scroll's leadership, um, Essentia listed on the AXS in June 2014, and it had a market capitalization of around $680 million in 2015. Um, back at the time, he told Tim that he thought Essentia could be a billion-dollar company. But as our listeners have heard, um, it is far from that at this present time. And uh, it looks like things really started to go pear-shaped for the company when it bought and then sold content marketing agency King Content, uh, resulting in a nearly $40 million write-off in the process. Well, that's been quite interesting to watch recently because, of course, there was the cyber attack at the end of last year and we reported uh, during that time that the communications around that were quite disjointed as well. Tim, you've been following iCenture's entire story really from way back uh, with the King Content acquisition you could also argue that they've had good people in there and Matt Stanton leading King Content, of course, Ed Harrison, well-known in the industry, leading iCenture as a whole now. But uh, how are you seeing this play out and, and how long does Ed Harrison have to turn this around? There's a lot of questions in there. Um, I guess to go back to your very first point, al- al- although, you know, I guess on Umbrella we've tracked them for a while, let's remember, you know, 
Isenti has its roots way back in the 70s or even earlier with media monitors. You know, John Kroll's father sort of almost started the roll-up of the various individual media monitoring companies. It then got picked up when the company was still branded as media monitors by um, Quadrant, Private Equity, the people who now own QMS, the out of uh, the outdoor advertising company. But they, they kind of working with John Kroll floated it successfully on the ASX. John stayed on as as CEO. Um, and initially things went went great. You know, that that share price began to nudge upwards and upwards and upwards. And uh, the first big mistake, and I still suspect it was one of execution rather than strategy, was buying King Content. You know, it was a moment when content marketing was hot. And, you know, as we've written about in the past, King Content was an agency which was absolutely built to, to grow as quickly as possible and then be sold. And that was what happened. And of course they had a much better sales operation than they necessarily did in execution on the actual sort of work for clients. Um, so, you know, chances were that um, probably I sent you overpaid and it was in the scheme of things. I can't remember. I think it was about 35 million or something. I, be- I believe if they had hit their targets over a five year period, it would have been 48 million. Um, uh, but even at the time, the industry was suggesting they had overpaid. Yeah, look, and it was, and it was that it was that day that that was announced. That I did quick phone interviews with um, with Craig Hodges, who was the boss of King Content at the time, the founder, and I said, "Well, will you do your numbers?" And he answered in one word, "Yes." And you know that that that, that quote that Liv is is alluding to, where I said to John Crow, "You know, could you be a billion dollar company?" Um, now. It made sense, though, because media monitoring, effectively, there's only so much you can do, particularly when you've got a near, at the time, certainly dominance in the market, if not near monopoly. So what they were thinking was, okay, you know, mostly our clients people are comms people. So if we can actually get into the marketing people in the organizations as well, those tend to be bigger budgets. So, you know, what can we do there? Um, And that was some of the thinking between King Content, you know, to get into the owned side of media as well as the earned side of media so it all made sense wrong acquisition and maybe the investment community began to lose a bit of confidence so first off the cfo went who i think the name was Nimesh Shah, if i remember rightly and then not long not long after that maybe a year later John Crow went, and as as Liv said he's sort of gone again with true scope and you know since then we've seen you know Meltwater come in a lot harder. We've seen Stream come in quite hard as well. Um, so there's much more disruption in that space anyway. Um, so it's been a bit of a, you know, it's been a bit of a, a tough one anyway. But then add in the environment getting tougher with the cybersecurity issue last year, where effectively they had a ransomware attack, which um, was, you know, was bad for the company. There was criticism at the time that they didn't communicate it particularly well. Um, and to the question about Ed Harrison, look, I, you know, Ed is very personable, you know, very much a salesperson. That was the route he came through the outdoor industry. Then he was at Fairfax, went over to Yahoo Seven when it was a joint venture between Yahoo and Seven. Um, and all of those were really sales roles, um, you know, sort of or, or company which companies which are very much advertising based. I sense you needs a strategy. Uh, I'm not sure I see what in Ed's career 
has prepared him to take a company with an existing model in a new direction. You know, he he probably wasn't the person placed to do it at Fairfax, but certainly didn't do it. Um, similar story with Yahoo 7, because it was a, you know, that was a bit of a hospital pass because you've got two organisations that want to get divorced from each other anyway. Uh, but I'm not sure that I see what his credentials are for remaking that business, which is, you know, what 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 that kind of certainly the price suggests is needed. If you know, if you look at that market cap now, yeah. And to be fair, when Ed took the role, that's not what the business uh, required at the time. There were certainly cracks that were being seen in terms of uh, a bit of a division previously between Hodges and Kroll and uh, Matt Stanton coming in uh, quite yeah, quickly. I remember Matt wasn't there for very long. No. He, just, he just tidied up the mm. King Content thing. Everyone realised that it was an even bigger disaster than they realised and then they got out of content marketing and Matt was gone again. It might also be worth noting that it did take a while for them to appoint Ed after Kroll's departure, there was quite a gap in between. So it says to me that there weren't exactly a lot of, you know, people lining up at the door for that role. Um, in saying that, though, he's he's obviously doing quite well out of it financially, given that he took you know, over a million dollars home last financial year. So uh, FY twenty twenty, uh, that's including um, dividend and share and bonuses on, on top of his base wage. Well, just today we saw a small increase in the share value, but quick question to round out on this topic. Uh, Tim, I'll go to you first and then Liv, I'll I'll get your response on it as well. Tim, is this salvageable? Honestly, I don't know. Um, I guess what does salvageable look like? You know, this is a business with a lot of long-term contracts with a lot of people that you know inertia counts for an awful lot so you know one option is you know they're, they're, you know it can be a good strategy sometimes just to take something which is profitable and milk it for as long as you can while it declines you know it's unexciting and it's probably a bit of a grim place to work when an organization does that but plenty do um that seems like the most logical thing to do um if you mean salvageable to become a billion dollar company um no i'd be very surprised if that happened yeah same as tim it looks like they're you know in a very very tough uh market at the moment there's lots of new competition there's obviously technological changes as well impacting their business model um i think there will need to be some significant changes at Icentra to really get it back up to its former glory and just before we wrap up on the media monitoring point, you can have my business idea for free. Nobody seems to be media monitoring podcasts. They're exploding. There's so much conversation about companies. Hey, I, it'll be very interesting. First person from Stream or Icentia or Meltwater or Truescope come to that, drops us a line with a transcript to this podcast, wins a free ticket to Umbrella 360. How about that? That's confirmed, free ticket going. And then you can have my idea of starting to media monitor podcasts as a bonus. Coming up next, streaming services battle for Aussie viewers. International streaming platforms continue to battle it out in the Australian market. 
Recently, Network 10 owners Viacom CBS announced it would launch Paramount Plus in Australia, replacing 10 All Access, while Amazon Prime Video made significant commitments to local content this week. Xander, you were at the rather large Amazon Prime Video event. How excited are you for the return of Pack to the Rafters? Well, to start with, Damo, it's back to the rafters, um, so we wouldn't want to get that wrong. Uh, that was. I'm a- going to admit that I never actually watched Pack to the Rafters, but I'll try and watch Back to the Rafters. Oh well, yeah, you know it follows the family, you know, a few years on, and but that, that that's sort of getting beside the point. And and to be fair, it was pretty cool to be at a presentation in the presence of the legend that is Michael Caton. You know, growing up watching him and a lot of different things. Uh, speaking of the event itself, as you sort of allude to there, it was a pretty high production value uh, deal. It was at uh, Crown Casino in Sydney. Uh, we were up pretty high with an amazing view of the of the city. So that was that was nice to start with. And then in terms of the content you talk about, they've announced seven new original productions. Uh, that takes the amount of productions that they've made in Australia to to fourteen. Um, and and they had lots of cast members and and as well as their executives on stage talking through all of all of the new bits of content. Um, they sort of centered around this whole customer obsessed line. They kept talking about that they're obsessed with their customers. Their customers are first, and all that sort of thing. And I I've also spoke to um uh, to Tyler Byrne and and Hushadar Karras, two of the executives in Australia about how they're positioning themselves compared to their competitors. Um, Prime is still relatively new in the Australian market compared to the likes of Netflix and even Stan. And and interestingly, Karis talked about streaming not being a zero-sum game. You don't get that sort of, I think, candidness from a lot of the executives. He he went on to say that, you know, they know that the average Australian has three-plus subscriptions. They just want to be one of those three. They're not, you know, they're not, under the impression that they're going to be the only subscription service an Australian person has. So that was really interesting. And, and you know, on the on the whole line of original content, it, it's they're, they're a little bit late in that. Um, Netflix has been producing original series in Australia, particularly the um, the comedy specials that they've been they've been doing for the last couple of years. And, and at the start of the year, Stan announced that they'd be looking to produce 30 original productions every single year moving forward. And then, of course, all that comes off the back of, of a new streaming platform, Paramount Plus, which is going to be launching in Australia um, from Viacom CBS, and, and that'll be entering the market soon as well. I guess importantly for Amazon with its Prime Video product, it was almost important for it to make Australia understand that this wasn't just the side service you get with Prime Delivery which seems to be what it kind of started out to be. Hey, subscribe to Prime Delivery, get all your Amazon stuff delivered, you know, for one lump sum a year. Oh, and by the way, you get a, a, a subscription video service uh, as a bit of a, a bonus. They seem to be taking it a lot more seriously now or saying to Australia, you should take us a lot more seriously now because we're investing in, in local content. Uh, can you tell us a bit more, Xander, about the business itself within Australia? I understand there's a lot of jobs that they've opened up over here as well, and, and it's quite a large operation locally. Yeah, so one of the numbers that they bandied about uh, at the presentation was that now including the um, the new originals that they're, they're, they're putting out, they will have invested $150 million in, in local content since 2019 and, and created hundreds and hundreds of jobs. Speaking with with the executives afterwards, they, they, you know, they were talking about the fact that they, the numbers show that 
the original content does well. It does well. Any streaming platform can pull US shows, UK shows and all that sort of thing. But the differentiation comes in whether that original content is good, whether it's of high quality um, and all that sort of thing. So they're really pushing hard on the local production side of things. And I think, as I say, that's a trend that we're seeing across all the, the streaming video on demand or SVOD platforms in Australia at the moment. And Liv, you covered off uh, the Viacom CBS offering in Paramount Plus, which is uh, replacing Tenor Access. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, Damien, that's a, uh, a new proposition from them coming to Australian shores. They will be looking to launch in uh, August for a bargain price of $8.99 a month uh, for the subscription. Um, it also is focusing a lot on locally produced content. Uh, when I spoke to uh, Beverly McGarvey at uh, Viacom, she said that they understand that Australian audiences really like Australian content. So they've already got a slate of um, different pieces of content in the works, one of them being a show that used to be on 10 called Five Bedrooms, which is an Australian comedy drama television series. Uh, They've also got another one, another series called Spreadsheet, and they've also got a feature film, an Australian feature film lined up. So plenty of content there on top of their international library of content that they're going to be putting on that for Australian audiences. Uh, Obviously, also earlier this week, we had the AT&T and Discovery announcement regarding Warner Media. So they will also be coming into the equation at some point in the future, I imagine, in Australia with whatever proposition they take to market in terms of bringing, i.e. HBO and other channels to a streaming service soon. And Xander, just return to you quickly because sport, as we've discussed with streaming services previously, was a talking point with uh, Amazon. Uh, They pushed to their sporting credentials again at the Prime Video announcement. What were they saying there? Was there anything different to what we already knew about Amazon Prime? And I guess it's sort of first foray into sports broadcasting. Yeah, that's right. And they didn't actually announce anything new. They're, they've got the Olympic swim, swimming trials coming up and that's going to be their first live sporting broadcast in Australia. They introduced some Aussie legends like Grant Hackett and Gian Rooney on stage who'll be doing the commentary for them. So um, I, I think for, for Amazon, it's sort of all about, as as we sort of mentioned before, showing that, that they're a serious player. Another another platform that's just done the same thing is, is Stan Sport, their first uh, live live streamed um, series of events was across the rugby union season just gone and and whilst sports like NRL and AFL are really the premium options whilst they're not on the market what we're seeing are these uh, newer players in the market coming in and showing that they can um, put out broadcasts of sports at a high production value I think what we'll see is is when it comes time for for the NRL and the AFL to to, to be up for, for bids, we'll probably see the rights go go at higher prices because there'll be a lot, lot more players in the market. And, you know, at the moment, as I say, Prime is, is going to be showing that it can do live sports. Stan has already shown that it can do live sport as well. Um, and I spoke with uh, Brent Williams uh, of Channel 9 after the Stan's, after their rugby season just wrapped up. And, you know, I sort of asked him, 
what what's next for Stan Sport? And he said everything's on the table. Um, I think another one that's interesting to mention at the moment and, and a sport that that we will see go to someone in the next couple of months is the A-League, Australia's premier football competition. Its rights are up at the end of the season. It's been well publicised that the Fox uh, broadcast across KO and Fox Sports of that competition has been subpar. Um, they've had all sorts of technical issues throughout the season. So um, it's pretty clear on the on the outside that if they're going to go in for it, they're not going to pay what they were paying before. They already cu- got a cut price deal last year during COVID on on the soccer or, or, or football. And, and, you know, that's going to be the next thing that goes to one of these players. And and there, there have been reports this week as well that, that the new Paramount Plus uh, platform will be going in for those rights as well, though um, no one's confirmed anything yet. It's all sort of insider reports. Um, but, you know, we're, we're going to see what happens next and and it's just going to become a more and more competitive streaming landscape. And I think the people that are going to benefit are the sports themselves. You know, they're going to be getting more broadcast rights money over the next few years perhaps than they ever have. Yeah, so that's a, that's a good talking point though. Are they? Because, Tim, I'd love to get your opinion on this. When we looked at music streaming services way back when and the competition was tough, everyone was coming out with a music streaming service, whether you're a telco, whether you're someone like JB Hi-Fi with their, their JB Hi-Fi now and Pandora and Spotify and all of these people and obviously the gold vanished quite quickly and suddenly we just were left with a core group of providers. This feels like a similar situation is it a similar situation? Look, I suppose the thing is, one of the rules is people always overpay for sports rights and get themselves into trouble. And over the years, it was the, the free-to-air networks who would take it in turns to to go into administration because they'd paid too much for the sports rights. We might be seeing the second part. Um, I realised as Xander was talking, something that's on my to-do list before I write the Saturday Best of the Week email is remind myself of the small print of the anti-siphoning laws in terms of in what circumstance sport can be taken away from being on free-to-air television. Uh, off the top of my head, uh, basically, you know, the, 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 there's the list of protected sports. And, of course, one way around it for, you know, back in the day it was subscription television, but potentially the same for streaming, was um, to partner with a free-to-air owner, which was often how things actually ended up not being on free-to-own. So it became then a very profitable thing for the free-to-air companies. Now, one question on that is, um, does that give nine an advantage because the stand tie-up? Does that give 10 an advantage because, you know, with Paramount Plus, which is the reboot, you know, the failed 10 all access really, um, so yeah, I don't know if you have an in, insight on on where we stand with the, uh, with, with, you know, with with the anti siphoning Xander. Yeah, so the, interesting you mentioned that. I think um, one of the reasons why, as it would appear through reports, that, that the Paramount platform, you know, with ten and and Stan Sport with with nine on board, have emerged as the front runners for the A League, is because they can do that. They can get it on free to air and all that sort of thing. Um, when I was speaking with Brent Williams uh, the other week, who who is the nine head of sport, if I didn't mention that earlier, I sort of asked him, you know, would nine look at moving any more of its NRL stuff onto Stan, and and he was quite reluctant to even talk about that. So I suspect that that might play into that. Yes, because um, I don't know the nature of the rights, for yeah. instance, that Foxtel have, and obviously onto. Uh, onto KO as well so that that and of course they 
they agreed the longer rights on on the Foxtel deal as well. So that may not be up for grabs. Yeah, and and the other thing that's at play here is that the long term broadcast deals for the AFL and the NRL are a free to air player and Foxtel. So it would be interesting to see whether if any of these new platforms won the rights exclusively, um, how that would play out. Yeah, and let's remember that Amazon picked up the Thursday night rights for the NFL in the US for something like a billion dollars a year. They've got a big war chest. I think very quickly before we move on, another interesting component to that is, of course, Amazon through AWS has a significant amount of partnerships with a lot of top-tier sports through data and analysis. And, of course, that could help play into how those sports uh, end up being shown to consumers but we need to move on coming up next i'll be chatting with hero chief operating officer james great the umbrella comscon stage is set for next week on may 27 the pr communications industry will gather at dalton house in sydney for what will be a jam-packed conference featuring 29 of the most senior executives exploring some of the most pivotal topics impacting the industry Hurry, final tickets are selling fast, so don't wait. You can check out the seller program and secure your seats by going to mumbrella.com.au forward slash comscon. Welcome to the Mumbrella cast and a special guest for this week. It's great to have you in the office again, James Great. Hey, and lovely to be here for my first ever podcast. Fantastic. Now, of course... You are the recently named Chief Operating Officer of Hero, an Australian network run by Ben Lilly. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a bit about that role and uh, what excites you about returning to agency land? Yeah, look, um, I, having been involved in the agency uh, world in Australia for what nearly 20 years, but the last couple of years spent sort of involved but sort of sitting on the outside you know you sort of get a uh, a viewpoint on the world and at, there's there's a point at which you kind of go well i've built my career around sort of being involved with things as opposed to just commenting and observe, observing and advising and i think i'm just sort of someone who just really likes being involved in agencies and i'd sort of like spent probably two years too long sitting outside so the opportunity to get more involved with an agency uh, in a totally new capacity uh, with someone that I've known for the last 20 years uh, and have a lot of uh, affection and respect for was was really too exciting. And I think it's also about about the moment in time. I think the, the advertising world, the marketing world, the agency world is, um, is undergoing a huge amount of change, but one that's kind of filled with, with huge opportunity. So... When Ben and I started talking, it sort of really became a question of uh, of when, not if. Now, for those who are listening who don't know the background of James Greed, I might just fill them in a little bit and, and jump in if I get anything yeah, incorrect. No, you you caught me on the train this morning looking yeah, through your LinkedIn, trying, LinkedIn to, <laughs> trying to get the, the dates right and, and all that. I won't go into the dates part of it but no we give dates a miss we'll give dates a miss uh you were of course the the ceo of of omd uh for a few years Mm -hmm. um you've also started up businesses the ladder uh recruitment uh business Mm -hmm. uh you were the ceo of mindshare and that wasn't just australia that was uh aunz plus japan 
plus, plus South Japan Korea and, and South Korea. Yeah, excellent. Uh, you've also been involved uh, as the CEO of Icon, and uh, if I'm not cor- if if I'm correct, the Chief Media Officer of Cummins and Partners yep. as well. Yeah. So long storied career and some very big successes as well, particularly in terms of OMD and Mindshare. I remember when I was uh, editing Ad News uh, ten years ago. Now a lot of the talk was around you and what you were doing at Mindshare. Um, tell me how that experience, all those experiences, shape your perspective coming back to to Hero in a network role. Uh, and how you feel maybe the environment has changed uh, as well, if it has changed. Yeah, okay. Well, look, I mean, I guess the um, uh, my past influences that have shaped my view on the world and my sort of desire to be involved with Ben and the rest of the team at Hero probably actually sort of goes back to why I started in the industry back in London 30-odd um, <clears throat> years ago and everything that's happened since, you know. When I sort of joined the industry, it was because I was lured by advertising. Uh, and I started at JWT in London. I was just sort of mesmerized by, I suppose, the business of commercial creativity. Just so happened when I joined, I got shoved down the media corridor because I had a South London accent and people thought I was more at home sort of being a media buyer. That was uh, buyer. <laughs> what you had to, to have to, to be a good media buyer. Apparently, yeah, <laughs> that seemed to be the case. Um, but I probably spent as much time working in creative agencies as I have media agencies. And I've always therefore sort of believed the whole purpose of media, whether it was actually in-house or working alongside as an independent agency with its Mindshare or PhD back in London, was to actually serve the business of creativity, right? It's not to be and, it's how does media support and inform uh, creativity? And, you know, when we sort of, I suppose, rebirthed IMD here when I joined at 2002. It was with a real strong lens around how do we sort of help clients understand how to use media to actually sort of like drive their messaging and their relationship with, with customers. You know, so we put strategy and planning at the heart of the offering. We did exactly the same at, at Mindshare, you know, hence its positioning as original thinkers. But I think it was our ability to operationalize that and sort of bring that to life that, that gave us the uh, success that we enjoyed um, at both OMD and, and Mindshare. You know, OMD went from sort of loss making to, you know, one of the leading businesses in the market with a great alumni who've gone on to take it on to even greater things. Uh, when I joined Mindshare, it hadn't grown for five years. The market had grown 15%, so arguably it shrunk. But within two years, we'd sort of use that position, the ability to deliver that to double its size and, and also become Mindshare Worldwide's country of the year as well. So I've always sort of firmly believed that sort of thinking that could enhance and inspire creativity and media has a role to play in that is ultimately, you know, the core purpose for and reason for being if you are running an agency. And, you know, ultimately that's what excites me about Hero. You know, it's a, it's a business uh, with a group of players within it who firmly believe that creativity is the only way to survive, okay? And, you know, sort of helping brands capture creativity, actually bring meaning to uh, the world that they're operating and also actually have all the constituent parts that you need as a group today to bring that to life through the customer experience, I think puts Hero in a relatively unique place. It's independence as well. The fact that it can be nimble, it doesn't have to sort of like deconstruct itself to 
actually be relevant uh, to uh, to clients of the future is what makes it such an exciting place to work. But you know, creativity is firmly at the heart and uh, pinnacle of what it was put on the planet to do. That's a really interesting point you make about creativity, particularly leading media agencies as you did locally. We ran a story earlier this week about Amy Bradshaw coming in to lead VaynerMedia over here. And one of the things she said <clears throat> was in Australia, there's a bit of a disconnect between media and creative. Uh, and it's something that maybe we saw overseas years ago, but Australia is still kind of lagging behind a little bit in joining the two together. I remember saying to you uh, one of the last times we talked that in my mind, you were the most creative of the media bosses. It's always been a, a large part of your philosophy joining the, the two together. How do you see that playing out in the Australian landscape? Is there still too much of a divide between the creative space and, and the media space? And, and if so, is that a position hero could plug? Um, well, to answer the first part of your question, I think, yeah, there is still a ridiculous divide. I don't think it's productive. I don't think it's inspiring. I mean, sort of you think about it as human beings, we spend more time consuming media than anything else we do. And we do that because it's interesting, it's exciting uh, for us. But I think some of our media agencies have managed to make the business of media dull and boring, confusing uh, for clients um, when actually it should be an amazing uh, input and catalyst for sparking, I guess, relevant creative thinking and, and bringing it to life. Um, I think also as well, I mean, I think the sort of concerning thing for me is that whilst media's become, you know, hugely sort of fragmented and evolving kind of faster than the speed of light, you know, on the one hand, it's never been easier uh, to buy impressions but it's never been harder to make one you know consequently it's it's never been easy to drop 10 million bucks and be invisible if you're an advertiser and i think for a lot of clients as well finding sort of like trusted partners to actually help remove the sort of like myth and the confusion around media is becoming increasingly hard to find as well so i think sort of like media partners that can provide objectivity plus also appreciate that injecting themselves in the creative development process in an informative, collaborative way is kind of something that I think is long overdue, but really not that hard to do. Okay, I think it's really as simple as just kind of ensuring that the right parts of the media thinking process are injected in a collaborative way into the planning process, the brand planning process and the creative development process. But I'd sort of, I'd suggest that majority of people who work in media agencies today have never set foot in an advertising agency, let alone a creative department as well. And they've become sort of, I don't know, uh, so sort of like distant in terms of actually understanding how they work, even though they're supposed to be working together to help clients grow their business. Well, a lot of the big networks we see as well, obviously have a, a large amount of creative agencies, media agencies, uh, different agencies servicing different things, whether you go into to PR as well. Why is that, do you think, that there is that, that divide and maybe that line in, in the sand, uh, you know, within those networks? Well, I think it's because a lot of those networks acquired those businesses individually as opposed to grew them organically. Um, and they acquired them individually to build their collection of services so they could provide the one-stop shop. Unfortunately, a lot of those businesses weren't incentivized to work together to develop ideas and bring them to life in the most relevant place. 
Instead, they were incentivized to grow their own P&Ls. Um, and my experience of working in, uh, in groups, um, they never played well together uh, because everyone wanted to try and influence the client relationship and think of themselves. And at the end of the day, I'd, if I'm a client, I don't really sort of like care about um, what the challenges are for the agency. What I'm interested in is how are they going to make it about me? How are they going to help me uh, make my brand famous and maybe take me on that journey as well and make me famous? But I think agency groups and their constituent parts have just made it really, really hard to do that. I mean, I think it's probably no surprise that you know, a lot of those sort of organic creative businesses are now seeing really great success, you know, vis-a-vis a special group. Do you think we're seeing a bit of a change in the environment now in terms of we've seen a lot of class-leading bosses, Conrad Spilver, Chris Houts, Naden Hepburn and more start up their own businesses. Uh, We've also seen networks uh, merge more agencies together uh, to form single business units where there might have been two or three previously. Um, they've acquired a bit more in some cases. Well, but we're seeing a bit of a change in the environment as well. And obviously Ben and Hero have, have um, come about as well and are offering uh, something new and, and something exciting in the local environment. Do you think that the Australian landscape is fundamentally changing or is it just a few you know i I guess um surface level changes and and the the deep rooted stuff is still the same look i mean i'm i'm uh always enthusiastic and an optimist if you like about the future and particularly our industry and i think there's a massive uh massive change uh underway um and i think it's it's like super exciting i think it's led by it's led by visionary, creative individuals with a really strong entrepreneurial spirit and a drive to sort of change things and make things happen. Um, I think, you know, that's what attracted me to the conversation with Ben because he's the epitome of that. Um, and I think his sort of vision to reinvent what creativity looks like tomorrow, but how you bring that to life and deliver it for clients makes him pretty much unique in the marketplace. I think when you sort of look at where he's gone uh, from in the last 14 months to where we are now, okay, I think it's quite quite remarkable. You know, the ability to sort of like uh, take uh, a business uh, like McCann, partner it up with the businesses that he's acquired under the Hero Group and then start to enable it to operate together to deliver great thinking across virtually every sort of like channel and experience that's relevant for clients is is quite is pretty unique in this marketplace and the fact that at the same time you're seeing other indies starting to get sort of greater notoriety and fame than their almost century old uh, multinational counterparts uh, suggests that it's not just a it's not just um, uh, a one-off okay there is a real movement and change underway I think what will start happening is you'll then start seeing um, leading talent starting to sort of move towards independence as opposed to multinationals because they're going to get greater sort of like freedom and license to do what motivates them. Okay, And I think they'll probably start finding a greater sense of meaning in those environments and a contribution okay, than they will in a lot of the multinationals that they've come from. I mean, you know, CHE, 
uh, special uh, thinkable and so forth. I mean, these are companies that people weren't really talking about, mainly because they didn't exist like two years ago. So you've had your feet under the desk somewhat for a while now, six months I believe you were consulting uh, with Hero prior to the the official role and, and title. So you've got a kind of a running start, I guess. What's the first points of business? Uh, what are you trying to achieve <coughs> short term with, with Hero and Ben? I mean, the first point of business really is to get um, totally familiar with all the moving parts uh, of the business. And my role as Chief Operating Officer, you know, working with with everyone in the business as well as uh, Ben as an entrepreneurial uh, spiritual leader is to really start, I suppose, operate within the business to better bring all of those uh, companies and our skill sets together to deliver uh, creativity across every touch point for all of our clients. So it is really about sort of being able to operate as a single entity uh, that can deliver borderless creativity as opposed to just running a set of individual specialists and their own P&Ls. The whole point of having a single P&L is to better join up that thinking and deliver it flawlessly. So you've mentioned that connectivity uh, between the, the businesses within uh, Hero and using that one P&L. If you're a marketer, at the moment and you're looking to to find a partner or you're looking at the different agency <coughs> models uh, around what do you feel should be the the most important things that marketers are thinking about right now in terms of finding agency partners and uh potentially partnering with with hero look i mean every every client sort of motivated by uh, different uh needs every client has probably different kpis and so forth but I guess if uh, if I'm a client, what I'm looking for is a partner who can uh, help bring relevant meaning uh, to my role in my audience's world and help me deliver that thinking and that sort of creative platform across every relevant part of the customer experience and doing it in a way that doesn't have me trying to sort of like get kittens in a sack. And if they can help me deliver fame and sustainable growth, and they can do it in a way that actually feels like I'm working with one partner, then that's got to enable me to actually better achieve what I'm after as well, without having to sort of like run around and, and kind of admin agencies. I don't think the world's really got sort of like time to manage agencies anymore. Do you think uh, a lot of marketers are partnering with too many agencies? Is this a, a new era we're kind of going into where you can partner, say, with Hero? And almost everything you need is in that one relationship. Uh, I guess we spoke about it maybe 10 years ago. It started to become a, another talking point about the return to full service, but perhaps that was a bit too simplistic in the way we described that. How do you see that moving forward? Is it about, I guess, smaller relationships? Well, not smaller relationships, but, but fewer relationships with groups that can do more and relationships that can go deeper? Look, again, I mean, there's so many clients, so many businesses out there, there's going to be a range of models and a range of sort of preferences, if you like. But I think sort of we, we fondly used to talk about full service agencies or full service groups uh, as if what we were getting was uh, 
one brilliantly integrated offering. And I don't think that really has been the case. I think in the past and most recently, full service means you've got a collection of uh, specialist capabilities all sitting under one one holding company or sitting in one building, almost like the 7-Eleven model. And there's a difference between having a full service in terms of I can get everything I want versus being able to lean in a partner that can give me an integrated idea, one clear creative sort of offering with the ability to bring that to life seamlessly across the relevant channels that, that I need to grow and drive my business and retain loyalty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's a very different practice. You know, it's one that utterly sort of like puts a creative idea above everyone else, but then understands how they serve a player role in bringing that to life, as opposed to rock up and say, oh, would you like some PR today? Or would you like some web dev today? Now, I want to talk to you about something that I know is quite core to your, I guess, professional being, which is which is purpose. Is there enough focus and attention on brand purpose and not just, I guess, the top level of brand purpose, but following through on that brand purpose and using yeah. it to do something? With do you mean it? as in agencies kind of lacking purpose as opposed to clients and their brands and organizations or all of the above? Yeah, look, I, I, all of the above, yeah, right. really. I yeah. mean, it's a, it's a big, broad question. I don't know, yeah. sp especially yeah. for you, because it is a, a very large part of, of what you do. But let, okay, yeah. let's break that down and let's talk about- right. Shall I talk about the agency? Let's talk right. about agencies let's, let's, first. Let's, let's start with that because, uh, I mean, a lot's been written about sort of purpose. I mean, in my mind, purpose is really simple. Um, it's the simple why, as Simon Sinek might describe it, the simple why as to why your organization exists, right? Larry Fink from BlackRock talks about it as being the navigational North Star, okay? We're clear on our purpose. It helps inform, if you like, how we approach every question we ever have about our business from, from top to bottom. And I think sort of reality is, is that I think in our industry, uh, many businesses lack that clarity of purpose. They are what economist Theodore Roosevelt sort of described as, you know, energy companies in the past just seeing themselves as gas companies as opposed to actually being in in the business of something broader, if you like. Because if they were, they would have gone into renewables, okay? They would have sort of seen themselves not as gasoline companies, but, but companies that were there to uh, power the world, power people, power business, move things or whatever. Um, you know, it's... It's kind of why Blockbuster didn't become um, Netflix because it just saw itself in the business of providing videos to rent, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's probably sort of like true of a lot of agencies. I don't really think they have that clarity of purpose. They simply are kind of uh, a product category. Okay, they're buying media, okay, or they're sort of like writing ads. Uh, I don't think they offer anything more meaningful, if you like. And I think that becomes an issue, therefore, when you're trying to differentiate yourself to your customers. Importantly as well, it becomes a challenge when you're trying to sort of differentiate yourself to talent, right? And I think if you sort of like look around the world, you know, in Australia or any Western country in the world, you'll see a massive sort of like disconnect and lack of meaning, if you like, that millennials and Gen Zs have in the companies that they're working for. If you look at the research that's been done by MIT recently in terms of what makes uh, work meaningful, there are three things that uh, people look. One is clarity of purpose. Um, 
Secondly is an alignment, if you like, between my role and purpose. I can see how what I'm doing is delivering to that. And three, all the other systems and the pe person next to me, I can see how they connect with what I do and enable us together to deliver that sort of like sense of purpose. And I think that's probably lacking uh, within our industry, which is why there's such a, a lack of differentiation in the offers within the marketplace. And the problem is, if the only thing that differentiates you is price, okay, then it's only going to go one way. And that's been, that's been an issue for this industry for the last 10, 15 years. And stepping into brand purpose then as well for, for clients, how do you see that playing out at the moment? And the brands operating in the market uh, at the moment locally, are they taking purpose seriously enough or are they connecting the dots properly? Uh, probably not. I don't think so. I think sort of, I think sort of very few uh, brands or organisations uh, have great clarity on um, the meaningful role uh, that they play in their uh, in their stakeholders' lives, including employees and, and customers, um, which I think is problematic. I think if the brand platform is just something that lives in its packaging in the ads that, uh, that surround it, then it's not sustainable. I think. There was some research done a year ago by Karmarama globally around uh, what is it loyal customers valued most in the customer experience, and it was customer service. Uh, and if you haven't got that clarity of purpose, you don't have that depth of meaning, um, and therefore your team in the front line, uh, i.e. your employees, are probably not going to be bringing that purpose to life to their most loyal customers. So I think that presents uh, a major problem. You know, I think that sort of... That sort of says that uh, brands and clients need to be thinking uh, a little bit more deeply about how they bring uh, that sense of purpose to life from the inside out. And we probably sort of name uh, just on sort of like one hand those that spring to mind. Obviously, you've got those that have a very strong social purpose in their, in their behavior, like Patagonia. But then, you know, how Unilever has... I guess, re-engineered its brands around clarity of purpose. Uh, you know, Dove being probably one of the most well-known. There are very, very few examples where that purpose is being brought to life across every lever. I think still so many brands are simply talking about brand behavior in advertising terms, not in organizational behavior terms. So, James, you've mentioned a fairly challenging issue purpose-wise yeah. within agencies and within brands as well. I'm not going to ask you for the silver bullet solution here because I don't believe there yeah. is one. I'm sure you'll tell yeah. me that there's not one. But stepping back one, are you seeing agencies and brands take these challenges seriously and, and move to affect change? So yes and no. I mean, I think uh, more and more people are are using the language. Although, again, I think that um, um, the word purpose has been misappropriated and misused. I mean, the majority of people think that really sort of like purpose is, is around social purpose. And I think obviously it's important that companies have an understanding of actually uh, how they play a meaningful contribution in society within the lives of the people who work for them and all of their stakeholders but as i said like purpose is that real north star clarity on why you were put on the planet okay however it's got to go a lot further than making a statement and putting the values that you decide are associated with it uh, in reception 
okay, or on the back of your business cards or on your website. I mean, when you've got real clarity of sort of like purpose, you have to be looking at how are you going to align your business, re-engineer probably, realign your business business from the inside out to deliver on that. Okay, because whether you are uh, an organisation specialising in advertising or media, or you are a grocery brand. If you are saying something but you're not delivering it, okay, then, you know, 10 years ago, people might moan to their mates down a pub about it. Whereas now, okay, everyone's going to be sort of like talking about it. Okay. So I think there is still a big disconnect. I think there's a growing realization that we need to offer sort of like deeper meaning in terms of what we are doing as a business, okay, to everyone involved in it. But that probably means massive organizational change. And I don't think companies are really getting to grips with that at the moment, okay? Uh, they're still using it as a badge differentiator as opposed to a behavioral and organizational differentiator. Um, and that's hard because that invariably means you have to realign your whole organization from the top down, from the inside out. And the reality is if you're running a multinational company here in Australia in advertising or media today, do you have license and permission to do that? Probably not. Do you have the time and resource to be able to go through the process to be able to figure out what you need to do to deliver it successfully? Probably don't have that either. Okay, uh, And that's why I think you're seeing a lot of startups and indies emerging because it's probably easier to realise that ambition and realise that dream uh, as a startup organically as well. It's easier to sort of like begin it from scratch or bring the right group of people together around that purpose and then start delivering it as opposed to try and take something that has 500 people in it or 300 people in it that's part of a global sort of entity and re-engineer it. I, I don't think uh, leaders have neither the time or money nor license to be able to do that. And that, by and large, is why I think we're seeing entrepreneurs taking it into their own hands and doing their own thing. And that's super exciting. We've just about run out of time, but there's one position that you've had that I want to quickly touch on, which is a bit different. Yeah. A bit interesting um, from my perspective anyway. You were a full-time triathlete for a little bit between uh, some of your leadership roles in the industry. I recently tried to run 12 kilometers and, and passed out pretty much at the end of it. So I can't quite imagine how you do a, a full triath a triathlon in the time that you're doing. But can you tell me a bit about what, what the, the thinking process was there between going from agency land to, to the sporting landscape and, and, and how, how you dealt with that? Um, yeah, well, I probably sort of like have to own up to that one. It, it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision to uh, take a year out and become a full-time triathlete. I just decided that as I was taking a year out, <laughs> I would focus on um, on trying to sort of run, swim and bicycle uh, a bit faster. So I figured I might as well just sort of uh, redefine it on my CV as a full-time <laughs> triathlete. I was neither professional nor have ever been very good. But I suppose like any, um, any physical uh, pastime, when you do the job that we do, you kind of understand uh, the mental as well as the physical benefits of, of exercise, particularly if it's one that's sort of all-encompassing, like, uh, like an endurance event, like a uh, triathlon, because it makes you think a lot about what you're putting in your body, makes you think about nutrition, makes you think a lot more about your own mental health as well as your physical well-being. So I think 
his value to me has been really uh, keeping my mind and body sort of like focused and fit because I think, you know, this business is as much an endurance event as anything like, uh, like triathlon. And you can only do it and keep yourself sort of like fresh and energised if you've got something to, uh, uh, to focus on outside of work other than family. Are you still doing triathlons? Uh, sort of. Uh, there haven't been many races over the last uh, 12, 18 months. Uh, so I've been trying to sort of like uh, keep myself fit. But it's really hard when you haven't got something to uh, to aim for. So I might just have to enter another one later this year, I think. Stay tuned. James Great, COO of Hero Network. Great to have you back in the industry. Great to have you on the Mumbrella cast. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, mate. My pleasure. And that's it for this week. Tim, Xander, Liv, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Damien. Thanks, Thank you, Damien.